You're listening to Well Made, a podcast about the intersection of business and design. I'm your host, Stefan Ango, co-founder of Limmy. Today we're talking to Grace Bonney. She's the founder of Design Sponge, which is an incredibly popular blog that showcases everything from interior design to food and travel, all through the lens of her wonderful design aesthetic. Grace has also been on the forefront of helping entrepreneurs through Design Sponge, but also her radio show, After the Jump. And now she's just released a new book called In the Company of Women, which is a very inspiring book that explores the lives of 100 creative entrepreneurial women through portraits and interviews. I wanted to have Grace on the show to talk about a topic that I think about a lot, which is asking good questions. Being good at asking questions, knowing what makes a good question, how to get Honest answers from people is a skill that most of us aren't taught, but it's an amazingly important skill to have. This was one of my favorite episodes. Things got very meta as we got deep into asking questions about asking questions. And you may hear a little bit of Grace's cat, Turk, who chimes in on some of his thoughts on the topic. Enjoy. Grace Bonnie, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So a lot of very exciting stuff happening. Uh, you're about to go on this whirlwind tour to talk about your book. Can you give like a quick description of, of what the book is about? Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Um, so the book is called In the Company of Women, and it sort of features and celebrates a little over 100 women who are running their own creative businesses. And that's everything from painters and sculptors to rock stars and poets and For me, the most important part of the book is that it's sort of attempting to fill a niche that hasn't been filled in the business book market, which is really representing women of color, women from the LGBTQ community, differently abled women, and women who are over 40, because women in those groups traditionally are underrepresented in those sorts of books, and I wanted to make a book that kind of worked on writing that wrong, and I'm just, I'm so happy with the way it came together. In the introduction to the book, you have, it's a quote, I forget from who, that says, you can't be what you can't see. And I thought that was like awesome. Thanks. That's Marion Wright Edelman. And she's an incredible activist and writer. And that's something that's really stuck with me for a long time, both personally and professionally, just the importance of being able to see somebody who either looks like you or reminds you of something that's important to you or your background. And it can really make a big difference in whether or not you choose to pursue something. And for me, that's made a big difference. So I wanted this to be a book that any person reading could open up a page and see themselves reflected in some way. And I, I feel really strongly that that's, that's possible. So I'm, I'm just really excited for this book to be out in the world. Yeah, I think even the people who are in the book who are high profile people are presented in a very relatable way. But then you also have lots of people that I would assume most people who pick up this book will not be familiar with at least like 50 out of the 100 women, if not more. And what I'm excited about is obviously like discovering all these people's lives and careers and approach to what they do. But it's also that the the relatability factor is so important because I think oftentimes we like carve out these like role models out of marble and they become these godlike figures. And that becomes something that's like impossible to attain. Mm -hmm. Whereas the questions that you're asking of these women and the people that you've chosen are all real, normal human beings that 
you know, you could be that person if you worked hard. Yes. I mean, for the most part, none of these women are the types of women who have, you know, huge teams of people helping them personally and professionally. They're all people who've kind of, through different paths, come to success at different levels and have done it just like the rest of us have. And I think for me, the key factor separating most people was just time and experience. And I ended up learning just as much from people who've been in business for, you know, four years as people who've been in business for 40 years. And so I wanted to make sure that there were sort of all aspects and stages of careers represented because I know I have a tendency to put people on a pedestal when their business is, you know, has achieved what I perceive to be a certain level of success. And so getting to talk to women like Eileen Fisher, Thelma Golden, and realizing that they still have just as many complex problems to solve as everybody else does was just a really nice moment that for the lack of a better word just was so relatable and I think that's an important take home from this book because no matter how great and amazing and successful somebody is they still have really crappy days like the rest of us and I think sort of seeing that was something I I, I really wanted the book to get that across. Well my co-founder and the CEO of Lumi is Jessie who's a woman and is probably like my biggest inspiration in my life and I see all the time that there's this huge like imposter syndrome that happens to everyone. But I think with women, it happens maybe even more where because you're so often compared to like, whether it's men or just people who've achieved a lot, it's so easy to like judge yourself on such a harsh level (laughs) at all times. And I've been really lucky to be part of a creative community, an event called XOXO. I've been to a lot of their events, which I love, and they talk a lot about this idea of imposter syndrome and you see your heroes go up on stage and talk about how they always feel inadequate and they always feel like they're not rising up to the level of whatever heroes they had and that is just like it's hard to really incorporate into your life even if you hear it from these amazing people but it's it's true. It really is. And I think the sad thing is that so often women are really kind of only compared to other women. And Mm. you see that a lot, I I find with like musicians where someone's called like, you know, a a female rock star or a female, like a band. And when it comes to designers, I think the same thing happens. I think, you know, female artists are compared to other artists and instead of just kind of the broader community of creative people. And so I'm hoping that this book kind of gives people a chance to realize that these women are not competition. They're they're very much a creative community and they're not people to look at as something that you need to judge yourself by or someone that you need to in some way surpass. Um, I think everybody spoke really clearly to how much they needed other women to be in their corner as support systems. And so I think that the more successful women get, the more they really need these in-person connections to other women running businesses. And that was kind of a big eye opener for me because it, it is easy to fall into that trap of thinking that because a woman does what you do, there's a finite amount of space. And especially in the internet, that's just, it's just never true. There's, there's always room for more than one person and your gender has very little to do with it. What, what's happening right now? Why is this book coming out right now? And why is like the conversation reaching such a peak right now? Oh man, there are so many reasons. I mean, I think if you look at our current political climate and just ridiculous amount of sexism that's everywhere, and it's not, it's not a new thing. It's just something that's getting more attention because we have a female candidate. And I think that's a factor. I think that there are more women running businesses right now than ever. And it's still not as many people as it should be. But 
there are a lot of women and they're, and they're speaking up and they're gathering and they're creating their own communities and lifting each other's voices up. I think there's the whole concept of like shine theory and really kind of being a part of, of shining a light on other people who are a part of your community. So there's this just kind of like general ethos happening. But for me personally, I think my sort of mission to, to sort of make inclusivity and visibility huge parts of Design Sponge kind of come back to my own personal coming out back in 2009 and then publicly in 2011 and kind of making that connection between the lack of visibility that existed within the design world for sort of out women and then connecting that to oh you know so many different types of women aren't represented whether it's women of color or differently abled women or queer women and once I kind of flipped that light on I couldn't unsee it and so for me the last like five years have just been this very slow and steady effort to turn the ship of design sponge around a little bit and make it less about stuff and more about representing people yes <laughs> i'm totally behind you on all of that and i have this weird theory that i haven't i've tried to write about it so many times and like I get halfway through writing it and I'm like, this is going to get me so much shit online. I'm not going to put this out. <laughs> but there's this framework and I forget what it's called, but it's basically how someone gets better at a skill over time. Mm -hmm. And it's like, a, it's like a matrix of four boxes, essentially. Like when you begin, you're typically like unconsciously bad at something. You don't even realize how bad you are. Then you recognize that you're bad at something. Then you become good, but you know that you're good. And then the final stage is you become like unconsciously good at something. You become a natural, right? And you go through these evolutions. So oftentimes people don't even know that they're bad at something. It's like uh, driving is the classic example. Everybody thinks that they're a great driver, but actually like they don't realize that they're really bad at it. <laughs> and the way that we make progress is in any skill and anything that you try to learn about, you go through these stages. And sometimes you skip right to the second stage, like let's say you go play basketball, you're not, you know instinctively like you're probably not going to get into the NBA or the WNBA. It's clear to you that you're not at that level. But if you work hard on it, eventually you get to becoming a natural. My theory about the conversation that's happening right now is that for so long, we were unconsciously bad at being egalitarian about things. And we're now like pointing that out. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like we've made one step of progress. We're now still bad at it, but at least like we're pointing it out. Yes. And, and I hope that people don't get offended by that. But like, I think that's where we're at. And hopefully that means progress. I, I agree. And I, I honestly think there's nothing wrong with people being offended. I think when people first started pointing out to me, like how much more work I could be doing at Design Sponge to better represent everyone, I was so defensive and so offended and felt like any questioning of, of my sort of editorial choices was a misunderstanding of my general like desire to do good. And it was just so short sighted. And I kind of had to get past that super defensive side of it. And once I got over that, I realized like, oh, God, they're, they're so right. And I have so much work to do. But instead of it feeling like work, I just kind of saw it as like an amazing chance to continue to learn and grow. Because especially if you've been doing something for over a decade, you can get into this place where you're in a groove, everything feels like it's easy, you kind of understand how it functions. And then to realize that, oh, no, no, you have a lot more work to do and a lot of learning to do. That's actually really refreshing. And so the last like few years of really trying to make sure I expand my 
circles of influence and the sorts of conversations I'm having and the sorts of people that I'm talking to, it's completely revived my interest in my job, which is amazing and I'm so thankful for it. So I feel like sometimes moments of, of discomfort or defensiveness or even feeling offended can lead to the best things. So about the format of the book, it is 100 women and then there's kind of one or two spreads dedicated to each and they are usually like big photos and then a set of a dozen or so questions. And this is kind of the topic that I want to talk to you about today. I've been fascinated with asking good questions for a few years now. And that's like partially what this podcast is for me. I have not achieved it in any way, but I feel like I do think that the idea that there are uh, no bad questions, there are questions that are better than others. Let's just say that. <laughs> and what I've noticed in your book is for the most part, you mostly ask the same questions. This is part of the question as well is like, how did you pick the questions and did that evolve over time? Did you ask different questions and then realize some were working better than others? We came up with two sets of questions, one that applied to women that were running very traditional businesses, and then another set of questions that were for women who ran creative practices that were just themselves, like whether they're a sculptor or a painter, because there are different ways of running those businesses than you know, if you have employees and things like that. So. We came up with two sets of questions and that was it and we stuck to them and I came up with them with the help of Kelly Keeler who's our team manager at Design Sponge and we kind of went through all of the questions that I used to ask people on my radio show. We went through the questions that we typically ask people on our life and business column that we have every Tuesday and kind of narrowed them down to a set of questions that we hoped would encourage transparency and vulnerability and just being really honest about when things don't work out and I think I kind of made sure that if people weren't willing to answer those questions that it just it wasn't going to work out because I just didn't want this to be a greatest hits of everything you've done right in your career because you just you don't learn anything from that. I just think that I learn I learn a lot better and I think most people do um, from situations that don't go right and how you course corrected and what you learned from that and I wanted to encourage people to talk about that as much as possible. So that was part of it. We gave them a choice of I believe like 17 or 18 questions, and then ask them to answer at least 10 of them. I think having a little bit of wiggle room gave people space to answer things they felt most comfortable with. And for the most part, we didn't follow up for more information. I liked just kind of leaving things the way they came and their words, and we didn't edit that in any way. So for me, it really came down to choosing the right people who I sort of inherently thought would be open to being really transparent and vulnerable. And I'm, I'm really happy with the way it worked out. I like the word vulnerable. I think that's a really um, useful frame of mind. What was your method for asking the questions? I mean, obviously picking the right person, but then the answers were written out. What was your method to get them to be vulnerable and answer the questions honestly? Um, there were a number of different methods employed. Basically, for anybody that we interviewed in person, which was a good chunk of the book, it's easier to kind of encourage somebody to be open when you're sitting across from them because I typically will lead with something that I've done that hasn't worked out to kind of encourage them to feel comfortable and then letting people see their answers written out before they went in the book, it kind of gave them a chance to, to make sure they felt okay with everything and felt safe and protected and we assured everybody that they would, you know, get a chance to like make sure they felt good with this. And so I think creating that sort of safe place was really important. And any time that somebody, I could tell like if I pushed them a little bit, they would be a little bit more open. I did follow up with some people and say like, hey, I actually know that 
you know, you went through this experience, X, Y, Z, would you be open to talking about that? And for the most part, they really were. I, th I think that I always kind of lead with something from my own experience, just to kind of be like, hey, if I step my toe in the water, will you do this too? And I find that that leading by example is kind of always the icebreaker people need to open up. So I think I just always lead by here's something I screwed up. Hopefully this will make you feel more comfortable. Well, you know, one thing that's interesting is I noticed some of the questions, like um, one question that you ask is, which of your traits are you most proud of? And it's an interesting thing because I feel like <laughs> if some, if people have watched um, Inside the Actor's Studio, have you, do you know what I'm talking about? The James Lipton thing? Oh, yeah, James Lipton, yeah. So he credits the interview questions to uh, this uh, French journalist, Bernard Pivot. Yes. But then Pivot credits Proust for asking the original questions. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure Proust got them from like some newspaper yeah, that yes. he was reading. And... I'm just like fascinated because I think that that question is in the original Proust stuff that I could find. Mm -hmm. And it has like transitioned from person to person to person over the years. It just is one of those questions that gets people to like really think now you're really turning it on themselves. It's not this like softball question that is just like, what are you up to where you have like a pre-recorded answer and it puts you in like a remembering mindset. Whereas this is a question that forces someone to be like, oh, that's actually really interesting. And I need to like answer this for myself now. That's something I thought about a lot was also the order of the questions and the juxtaposition of answers. Because when you're asking someone to be vulnerable, it's kind of like that old theory of sandwiching critical feedback in between two things that are <laughs> that are nice. Yeah. And so I wanted to sort of build people up and say, hey, let's let's take a moment and let's stop and reflect on all the incredible things you've done. And let's talk about the parts of yourself that you are proud of that that are going great, that you really like want to be able to remember and kind of mark at this moment. It gives you a moment to kind of be nostalgic and think about things you're proud of. And so then when you're asked to be vulnerable, it's a little bit less scary. So I, I juxtapose those questions on, on purpose. But that's always been one that I'm really proud of because I think that so often, I, I just feel like as women, we're, we're really hard on ourselves. And I think we're always kind of thinking about the areas we're not performing as well as we'd like to. I just really wanted to encourage everyone to stop and have kind of a this is your life moment and just say like, hey, actually this this part of my life and this part of the way I am and the way I do things is actually working out really well. And that was something I think a lot of people struggled with initially that question. And then once they finally kind of came around to something, they had a lot to say, which was great. Like one of my favorite questions that you ask is in moments of self-doubt or adversity, how do you build yourself back up? If I was to answer that question, mm -hmm. I think my answer would be to ask more questions. One thing that I do every year, and I started doing this about three or four years ago, is this is my New Year's ritual. Instead of like writing, you know, my resolutions or whatever, I have this set of questions and I randomly found them on Facebook. It's like 40 questions kind of recapping your year. And, and some of them are very deep, like what was your proudest moment? And then there are some that are very simple, like what's a song that really stands out? from this year and I'll just write this all down and if you do that every year the answers are so fascinating to look back once you kind of have that archive going there's questions like are you happier or sadder than you were mm. at this point last year and so you can kind of like track on a, a graph like yeah. how, how's it been going for the past few years <laughs> and, and I think like asking more questions of yourself maybe it's like self-centered or egotistical or whatever but sometimes you might be scared of the answers that you might come up with just like thinking about about it in your own mind. But I think sometimes, I mean, 
I think even if it kind of has a moment where you point out like, oh, maybe I'm not happier this year than I was last year, I think that's a good moment to stop and be like, oh, okay, well, what can I do to change that, to work on that, to get more in touch with that? And I, I think sometimes asking those sorts of questions, like, yes, they're obviously self-focused and sort of self-reflective, but I prefer that sort of self-reflective moment to what we're kind of in right now with social media, which is what seems like constant self-obsession of sort of like, here's a selfie, here's what I'm eating, here's what I'm doing tomorrow. And we've all, we all do that. I do it all the time. It's just, I think doing less of that and doing more higher quality, but less often sort of self-reflection is, is a really valuable tool to kind of stay in touch with what's important to you. And likewise, asking those types of questions. Part of the reason I do this podcast is because oftentimes I'm interviewing friends or people that I admire and I'm trying to ask them questions that there's no forum for those questions to really exist in our daily life. I actually published a quick little thing on Medium a, a few weeks ago that w was like 14 questions you should ask your team. And this was a random thing that popped into my head because our team at Lumi was growing to be about like 13 or 14 people. And I was suddenly realizing that like I, there's lots of things I wish I knew about the people that I work with every day. And I just like don't even know, you know, what were your parents' jobs? Where were you born? Like very basic things like like that, mm -hmm. that just gives you so much context about the people that are around you. And so, I mean, I publish those if, if people want to ask them of their friends or of their coworkers. It, I'm going to just hammer this, this whole theme of asking good questions for the rest of the episode. I also just love that you just gave me my like team email for the week. I'm totally going to have everybody answer those questions. I love that idea. It's great because I tried to come up with a questionnaire and some of them are similar to yours. One question that I loved was, what is one thing that makes you feel anxious or nervous? And then the next one is, what is one thing that makes you feel relaxed, calm, or at peace? Mm. The third one in that series is, what's one thing that makes you feel excited or fired out, you know, in a good way? And between those three things, you can really assess, like, what's going to make someone uncomfortable? That might be different for different people. And it really helps to know what puts someone on edge, because then you know what to avoid. Or if you're going to do that, get ready for the automatic response that might occur. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We did that a few years ago with our team where it was like a very involved personality test. And we all had like copies of books and you had to answer this 30 minute questionnaire. And it kind of helped us all understand how we each function and like what's important for us. You know, how are you personally fulfilled? Like, is it someone who needs a lot of feedback or someone who needs to feel like they're included? And it was very interesting to see how our different personalities sort of functioned and how they work together and how we could use each other's roles to better serve each other's needs. And it was fascinating. But I, I love the idea of asking more personal questions and less, you know, sort of how, how is your workflow, that sort of thing. I'm totally going to ask my team all of those questions. Just so we can see if we can take this even to the next meta level. <laughs> what I'm going to do is I have a list of questions that I've copied from the questions you've asked your interviewees uh, in the book. And you can either choose to tell me why you decided <laughs> to ask that question, whether it was a good question or not, whether you liked the answers. You can answer that question yourself, or you can just give me an answer that you really liked from uh, the people that you interviewed. Okay? Okay. Good. Got it. So the first one I think that you ask of almost everyone was, what did you want to be when you were a child? That was one of my favorite questions, but it ended up being 
one of the questions that we included the least because everybody had very similar answers with the exception of maybe two or three women. Almost everyone mentioned some sort of performer. People wanted to be ballet dancers or they wanted to be singers or they wanted to be actors. And I found that common thread so fascinating because I do feel like being a business owner, there is this element of performance that, that, that happens because you do have to be the face of something. And especially with the way all businesses and brands are expected to be on social media now, like you do have to kind of perform, you know, a bit as a business owner. So that was fascinating to me. Um, and my answer for that, which has in a tiny way become true, was when, when I was little, I wanted to run my own newspaper. And mm. um, my parents gave me um, like a really old typewriter and I was an only child. And so I spent a lot of time sitting at the dining table by myself, just like writing pretend newspaper stories and then handing them to my Barbies that I lined up on all of the different stairs of our apartment that we lived in. And each floor was like a different office. And so I would hand different stories to different Barbies on different levels. I feel like most people pick the the jobs that you described because that's what they see on TV, right? Those are the people that you see right away. They're the actors, they're the, the famous people, or maybe they're the famous people in your neighborhood, like, you know, the firemen, or you're like, they're the people that like seem larger than life. Did your parents make you watch Citizen Kane? Or like, well, how did you get to like, <laughs> newspaper magnate. <laughs> I think I just, I always really enjoyed reading and writing. It's an activity you can do without a sibling. And that's, so that to me, like, that sounds a little sad, but it, it didn't feel sad. It just felt like exciting to have an activity where I could create this whole make-believe world that I got to be a part of. I mean, honestly, all of my school experiences from, you know, elementary school to college, I never felt like I really quite fit in anywhere. And so creating my own world or my own community, whether it was real or imagined, was a big part of that. And so I think that allowed me to do that in a way that felt really just fun and creative. And so I, I think Design Sponge has become this like digital version of that that I didn't even know I needed. But I kind of love that full circle aspect. Okay, I'm just going to jump around in this list that I made. Sure. Name a fear or professional challenge that keeps you up at night. Mm. Oh, God, there's so many. Um, I would say the first one is just there is a connection between my sort of passion level and excitement at my job and being able to support financially the people whose livelihoods depend on a paycheck from Design Sponge. And a lot of times I think to myself, like, okay, well, the day I'm not interested in this job, uh, you know, I'll just close the site down because I have no interest in taking venture capital money or selling the site or anything like that. So in my head, the, the very selfish part of me that just only wants to have this be a passion project is always keeping that door open. But then the reality is the site supports people who very much feel like my family now that I've worked with for the better part of a decade. And I can't just shut it down and, and move on when I'm not excited because these people, you know, their mortgages depend on my paycheck. And so there's an interesting balance between wanting to be true to myself and maybe wanting the site to talk about deeper issues and things that are more important to me right now and still having to write about the things that kind of bring in the most traffic. And in my earlier days, I would have been a much bigger purist and said like, well, you know, I'm never going to write a listicle because I hate them and they don't feel sort of authentic to me. But listicles do really, really well. And I really care about making sure I can pay the people who work for me as much as humanly possible. And so if that means that I have to write posts that aren't my favorite thing in the whole world, that's an exchange that's fair to me and that, that's totally worth it. But I do spend a lot of time up at night making sure that I've done enough and run the business conservatively and smart enough that 
I don't have to worry about being able to, you know, make anyone's payroll at the end of the week. I feel very free running a business, but I think that is like something that feels not free is that you have this enormous responsibility to make sure that everybody has a job and gets paid. Yeah, and it's 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 a priv- it's a privilege. It really is to to be able to have people who have given their days and their nights and their weekends to what began as a very personal passion project. Not a lot of people get to feel what that feels like. And so I feel really lucky. But the reality is it is something that's stressful. But it's a, it's a stressor that I happily accept. What's your favorite thing to come home to after a long day of work? Dogs. Dogs, dogs, and more dogs. <laughs> Not cats? I feel, like I'm, I feel like we have another guest on the podcast. <laughs> We um we have my cat Turk who's now almost fifteen. Has to be offended by your answer, by the way. He's staring at me from behind a baby gate where he's been cordoned off because he will step all over my computer if I let him. I love him more than anything, but he does not greet me in quite the same way that our two dogs do. And he typically complains and asks for food and they want nothing more than to like shower you with kisses and nothing puts your day, especially like an internet based day in perspective, like two like wiggly, happy things that just want to be walked and get outside. And so there's nothing better than opening the door to just total melee of dogs jumping everywhere. I feel like his vocal, (laughs) (laughs) he's very upset about your answer. (laughs) Um, But I think that that was probably one that came up quite a bit as an answer, right? Yeah, actually, the very last page of the book is um, right across from the acknowledgments is this collage of photographs of everyone's dogs from their studios. Mm -hmm. Because uh, Sasha Israel, who took the majority of the photos for the book, who came on this like incredible adventure of traveling to interview women with me, she just kept taking pictures of everybody pets and we just had so much fun meeting all of their pets mostly because we all missed our own pets while we were away and we came away with this incredible collection of like beautiful portraits of mostly dogs so we put them on the last page of the book because that was I mean almost every single woman had a dog in their studio and so making that connection and and kind of acknowledging them as an important part of that space was like a really fun part of the process for me. I I feel like I've just recently joined the club because we have a a little puppy that's like Jesse's dog, but it's become the Lumi mascot, uh, who is, I think, only six or seven months old. And I've always had cats growing up, but I always thought if, if I could find a, a good little mutt who is, like, smart and friendly, it would be perfect. And, and this little guy uh, is amazing. It's, like, 100% joy at all times. His life is amazing. And so whenever some, like, thing is not going great, I know who to turn to. Yes. <laughs> They really, I mean, I, I love cats. I like firmly wore my like cat lady badge of pride Uh and, and I still love cats. Like if someone handed me a kitten, I would take like 10 more, but I feel like there is something inherently like to me necessary about having a dog because I am a pretty solitary person and I could kind of stay indoors all day if you let me. And the cat, I mean, I love him to pieces, but he's never going to encourage me to leave the house. And having two dogs that basically look at you like, can we go, can we go, can we go at all times? It's just, it's been really helpful and healthy for me to have these two wonderful animals in my life that encourage me to like get outside and walk and be healthy. If you were given a hundred million dollars 
Would you run your business any differently? How so? Oh, hell yes. So much differently. Um, the very first thing I would do is give everybody ridiculously huge raises. You know, the reality of working online with an ad industry that just increasingly does not favor original content is that we just don't have a lot of money. And I think because Design Sponge has been around for a while and has earned, you know, some respectability within the industry, people assume we have a lot of money and that is not the case. And I'm, I'm proud that we've been able to weather some very serious financial struggles as the market goes up and down. But you know, huge salaries is just not something that happens here. So I would give everyone a huge raise. Um, I would make regular team retreats, a thing that happens a lot because we just don't have the money to do those team retreats that so many other companies can do. And I'm always so envious of that because I want to just put everybody on a plane, take us somewhere fun and just work together. But that doesn't happen. It happens on, on Google chat. and That's about as far as we get. So I think anything that makes our team feel more appreciated and connected, I would immediately do. And then I would also put some money into more programs that give back. Like it's been really difficult to fund our scholarship for the last few years because I mean, to be quite honest, like most brands just don't see the value in just giving money to people unless that their product is somehow like heavily a part of it. So I would love to be able to just kind of give back without having to answer to a sponsor that wants to make something commercial connected to it. Going back to the first part of your answer, do you think that you can make that a sustainable thing? Like, do you think that by raising everyone's salaries, by having more offsite team vacations or workations or whatever you want to call it, do you think that there could be a return on that investment? Um, financially, probably not. I think you might you might see it in small ways, like you might come up with a series that you could like pitch to a sponsor. But I don't know, I think at the end of the day, like I care way more about developing relationships with people that I work with and within our community. And I've gotten better at making sure there is a way to financially cover those, whether they're projects or in person experiences. But I think because I started Design Sponge back when people weren't making a lot of money off of blogs, like I just never quite moved over to that mental space where I assumed that every exciting project we do should be connected to like a huge profitability margin, which I'm sure everybody who runs the business part of my team hates. But I just I really care a lot more about just making sure that the people who work with us and who like spend time with us talking and leaving comments that they feel respected and supported. So that that's always going to be my like number one. Well, it leads perfectly into this other question, which is name the biggest overall lesson you've learned in running a business. Hmm. I feel like I learn a lesson every week because I make a mistake every week that I have to kind of find a silver lining to. But I think the thing that I've learned that's most important and kind of touches on a core issue of mine, it was something I learned from the book that um, Liz Lambert said, who runs an amazing series of hotels in Texas. And she said that who you are as a company and as a person, it's not expressed through a first impression. It's expressed through the way you handle yourself when something doesn't work out. Mm. And for me... I just had this huge like sigh of relief and like aha moment when I read that because I thought, why don't we talk about like how important it is to just be able to right a wrong or to fix something that doesn't go right rather than spending so much time worrying about never making a mistake and trying to be perfect and get everything right the second you do it. Just spend more time using those goof ups or just little communication errors as opportunities to communicate who you really are. And the second I saw that differently, it really changed everything from the way I talk to my team to the way I handle comments to social media. It just, 
it kind of accepted like, I will say something that inadvertently upsets somebody, I will communicate in a way that wasn't the most positive. And if I use that as a chance to really talk to somebody and connect with them, that's where the lesson lies. And that's where I get a chance to kind of express who I am and what I care about the most. So that lesson has really stuck with me lately. Were there other big aha moments like that that came from other questions or, or, or some of the interviewees? Yeah, I mean, it's very simple, but and there's kind of a dual meaning to it. But Tavi Gevinson, who runs Rookie, mm-hmm. um, when I when I asked her, I think about what's like the one piece of advice you would give people, she said, own everything. And I interpreted that as like, own your brand, own your copyrights, own your content. And then when I was speaking with someone else, they interpreted that as like, own it, claim it as yours, like, you know, take credit for all of that, like really kind of own the experience of something. And both levels of that meaning to me are so important and so impressive for somebody who, when I was talking to her, was 19, to sort of have that clarity already was so important. And I think so often, because I feel lucky to do what I do, I don't push to own things and I don't push to have contracts that maybe protect me or my content in the way that I would want to. And it was kind of a reminder I really needed to hear. It was like, it's okay to ask for the things that I want that allow me to feel comfortable and secure in my investment, whether it's in a team member or something that I'm producing for someone else. Um, Asking for ownership and then being able to really fully kind of own, in quotation marks, that moment or that project is, is really important for me right now. She blows my mind. She's got to be up there as one of my biggest inspirations as well. I think what's so fascinating to me about Tavi is in addition to like building a media empire by the time she was in high school, was just that she's not, she's not being defined by the first successful thing she did. She's kind of like, oh, cool. That was fun. Now what do I feel like doing? And obviously there's, you know, not everybody can just jump from impressive career to impressive career. But the fact that she's embracing that like, hey, I'm a young person, I want to try different things and see where life takes me. Like, that's a wonderful example. Because I think so often when one project goes well, people expect you to just do that forever. And, you know, who you are when you're 19 is not going to be who you are when you're 30. And so understanding that life will have many, many paths that unfold for you it's just really nice to see. And for me to be 35 and to look at someone who's 19 and be like, oh man, she's already figured that out. Like (laughs) I really need to figure that out, embrace that too. What does success mean to you? Hmm. That's a hard one for me. Yeah. Um, I don't know, to be honest. It has nothing to do with finances for me. Success to me means, I think, feeling like I'm doing something to help somebody in some way. I think that I'm somebody who's very much fueled and fulfilled by being able to use whatever skills I have to help someone else do something positive. And that's that's changed over the years from creating a platform to promote people's work to working behind the scenes to help people launch their businesses to at this point trying to be more involved in like social justice causes. I think the common thread for me has always been a sense of being able to do good or give back. And so I think for me, success is somehow linked to that concept emotionally. But when I think of success, I I very rarely think of anything like business related. I don't think of money. I don't think about awards or anything like that. I very much think about like the sense of, of doing good that stays with you when you like get into bed and close your eyes at night. The person I always think of when I think of uh, success is my grandfather who's still alive. I think he's 85. He was um, 
a NASA engineer. But the other thing that was amazing throughout his life, he's always been kind of a tinker and a gardener and making his own things and growing things. And I feel like when I look at the word success, I think what is success for a human being, like a human in the biological sense of the meaning, like being a successful human being as far as I'm concerned and why I love my grandfather so much is that are you able to put a roof over your head, feed yourself, grow plants, go hunt or do whatever you need to like keep your 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 family and your friends healthy? And then can you also tap into what we're given as as human beings in this like magical brain to pursue like the biggest possible ideas? And so like the people who can balance those two things, I feel like are are successful to me. Absolutely. Were there any other answers from uh, interviewees that you really liked about that question? And for some reason, that the first thing that's that's coming up, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that was related to sort of success and and like happiness and identity was something that Jody Patterson said in the book when she talked about early on her father telling her like the one thing that no one can ever take away from you is what she was calling like her mojo and sort of her essence and who she really was and how she's carried that through to this day and that what kind of gave her like chutzpah and confidence as a kid is something she still holds on to and it's just kind of this inherent idea of self-worth and I think for me if you could hold on to that like excitement and confidence you have when you're a little kid and you're fearless and carry that into adulthood and business that's success I mean that's that's a hard thing to be able to do, but a wonderful thing to be able to pass on to the next generation. So when I read that in Jody's interview, it really stuck with me. Picasso has this like famous quote where he said he knew how to paint like Raphael at age 15, but it took him until he was 90 to draw like a child or something like that. And I just was like, that is the ultimate goal is to somehow continue growing in terms of your experience and your skills as a, as a human being over your lifetime. But somehow get more and more free and more and more childlike in your perception of the world. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of art school where I feel like I remember being so frustrated having to learn like the proper way to like be a printmaker when I was in college. And then my teacher kind of pulling me aside and being like, you have to learn all the rules so that you can break them. This is how this works. And that made a lot of sense to me. And I feel like a lot of times you just have to kind of live enough and work enough and experience enough that you kind of understand the rules and the systems and what's in place. And then you can kind of let them all go. And the happiness lies in the letting it all go part. And I'm definitely not there in my career, but I, you know, I think I will be at some point. Let's do a couple more easy ones here before we wrap up. Sure. What is your no-fail go-to when you need inspiration or to get out of a creative rut? Uh, a walk. We moved to upstate New York, and for 10 billion reasons, walking has become my favorite activity because I always think of it as like, this is the lamest analogy, but it, it feels like a, like a mental Brita filter. <laughs> like It feels like this, like, like a sieve, just taking out all the things that are stressful and just leaving them outside. I mean... I think a lot of times athletes talk about like leaving it all on the court and I don't play any team sports so I have no place to leave that. But I think when I go for a long walk, especially we live up near the Catskills and we can go to all these amazing state parks in New York and being able to get outside, there's just something about fresh air that feels like it just washes everything else away. And it has this like magical ability to put things in perspective for me. And I find that 
my ideas and the things that make me tick at work, they work a lot better when they're in perspective. And so just going for a long walk, like at least for an hour, somewhere where I'm not going to see a lot of other people, where I won't have internet, all of that, that's really necessary. And, I, and that's why I love having our dogs is that I get a chance to do that at least twice a day. I'm a huge fan of that. And I often do that with Jesse when we're in a rut or we're dealing with some sort of challenge or question that's nagging on us. And for us, it's completely different because our office is in like the middle of this industrial area called Vernon in Los Angeles. And we just go into the parking lot and it smells like hot garbage and manufacturing. <laughs> And we literally just go around in a circle that's very small, but we will walk in a circle for like 30 minutes or an hour. I would absolutely love to go walk in the forest, but any type of walking is helpful, even if it's uh, not necessarily like the cat skills. It is because I think it's funny. I do like this like cross training workout program in our neighborhood too. And I feel like that's wonderful, but there's a difference between walking and stream physical activity because when you're doing something that requires your entire brain, I, I can't kind of sift through things the same way I can when I'm walking. I feel like walking is my version of like meditation where things can kind of bubble up, I can work through them, and then I can bring home with me the things that are important and leave everything else behind. Is there a last question that you want to answer? I'm going to leave it up to you. Which of your traits are you most proud of? Uh, perseverance. Uh, yeah. I think that I've been through a lot of difficult things in the last few years and some really wonderful things too. But at the beginning of this year, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which was terrifying and just really, really difficult to sort of process and this new way of living and having to give myself like a dozen shots a day and all of this just really scary stuff. But when I look back at January, I thought I would never get out of that like dark hole. And now I feel like honestly pretty fine. And to look back and be like, oh, you worked through a really hard thing in just a few months and accepted your new normal. Like, I feel really proud of that. And I think that that's one thing that has kind of stayed with me from early on was just this idea that like, keep your head down, work through it, and you'll get through it and it'll be okay. And so I think that that, that sort of perseverance is something that's really served me well in my personal life as well as at work. Perseverance is uh, huge. I always think about, you know, the turtle and the hare. It's just, I'm fine being a turtle. It's okay. <laughs> just keep going. You got it. You'll get there eventually. That's amazing. Well, thank you very much. The book, it's called In the Company of Women. And I'm assuming it's going to be on all the places where people buy books. <laughs> it will. Is there anything else you want to share in terms of what people should do? Obviously, Design Sponge is uh, an incredible resource for designers and creative people and people who are just looking for a bit of inspiration throughout their day. Is there anything else you want to tell people to go check out? The week of October 4th, I leave for book tour and I'm going to be on the road for about a month and a half. And I'm going to, I believe, 12 or 13 different cities. And if you are near any of the cities, come join us. It's going to be really fun. And all the tour dates and tickets are up at designsponge.com slash book. And it's going to be fun. So come join us and have a conversation. It's going to be great. I challenge everyone to ask themselves all the questions that you asked of uh, your interviewees. Go get the book and see what you come up with. Everybody should be asking themselves more questions, I think. Thanks for asking me questions today. I really appreciate it. It was great to have you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed the show. You can find many more episodes of Well Made on iTunes, on Google Play, as well as on our website, blog.lumi.com slash wellmade. Or just search Well Made Podcast and you'll find it.